Dr. Neha Bhattak, and you're listening to Health Discovered, the show dedicated to taking on important topics and discussing what they mean for your health. As always, we bring you fascinating stories and unique perspectives while looking for unexpected discoveries along the way. We'll also explore thought-provoking ideas and questions like this one. With the 2022 Winter Olympics underway, what lessons can an eight-time Olympic medalist teach us about life and protecting our mental and physical health? I'm really excited to welcome our guest, eight-time Olympic medalist, Apollo Ono. That, I think, makes you uh, the most decorated American Olympian at the Winter Olympics, right? Um, uh, I think for the U.S., it does. <laughs> <laughs> so you're joining us to share how you've made a pivot to new experiences, including writing your most recent book, Hard Pivot. So thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, how are you enjoying this year's Winter Olympics? What are you What are you watching? Well, I I of course watch all of the short track and long track speed skating. I think because I'm of my own bias. Um, I often watch uh, skiing, downhill, uh, super G moguls, and ski jumping. Those are some of my favorites. But I, I have to admit, you know, I've I've watched some of the you know, the snowboard half pipe, which is always really fun and kind of like jaw dropping. And then something that I'm looking forward to watching is like the snowboard cross, the one where they race against each other going down. That's always pretty cool. Wow. I have three daughters. And so we're doing a lot of figure skating watching. And every four years I become an expert at curling. And then I forget all about all the rules. And so I look forward to that every year, every four years. <laughs> Uh, so does it bring back memories for you? What are, what is your sort of favorite Olympic memory personally? Well, my, my favorite Olympic memory is probably the ones that I've competed in myself. So in the 2002 winter Olympics in the 2006, and then again, in the 2010 winter Olympics, um, they all had their special moments, uh, which are somewhat ingrained in my, in my memory and my psyche forever, both because of, just the natural kind of you know ups and downs emotionally that one experiences throughout those games, but also they were just such a an important part of my life that I carry with in terms of life lessons and insights with me today. So there's, I mean, there's a few that stick out and that resonate the most. I think the first is my first ever Olympic race and final, which was the men's 1,000 meters in Salt Lake City. That was in 2002, literally 20 years ago. Wow which is awesome to know that like those lessons that are still relevant um, today were inspired because of those events that occurred on that special day when I was like 19 years old going on 15, you know? Well, right. Do you ever feel like you want to suit up and, and join? Does that happen to you every four years or is that really behind you? I, I think it, it's taken me many Olympics to finally get to a point where I feel like I, I don't have the desire to go out there and race. Uh, I think subconsciously there's still this belief that I can be very competitive on the international stage. And then I need to kind of remind myself that I actually have not trained in that capacity in 12 years. And so sometimes the mind wants to do something the body's not able to. <laughs> so, so from being an elite athlete, you've done a variety of things since then. And you 
discuss that in your new book, Hard Pivot. Can you tell us what, what do you mean by hard pivot? And what does that mean in speed skating and outside of speed skating? Sure. Um, you know, a hard pivot in speed skating is uh, a very high speed, aggressive turn that we perform uh, on each corner of the rink, uh, on both sides of the rink. So, you know, going 30 to 40 miles an hour in one direction and then crossing over onto our right skate, leaning over into a pivot and hopefully successfully executing that turn without slowing down and or falling to go in the complete opposite direction. And that's the hard pivot, right? It looks like we're headed in a straight line. We do the crossover and then we whip around immediately with such velocity and force into the other direction. Um, you know, the, the, the blades themselves are about one millimeter thick. Um, we're putting like 2.5 to three G forces on one leg per corner. Uh, so a tremendous amount of pressure and the hard pivot in speed skating, the way I describe it is very much like how we're kind of living our own lives, right? We're kind of speeding along and at the snap of a finger, we either by choice or by force, we have to do these maneuvers and these hard pivots. Uh, and many times we don't execute them successfully and we fall and we crash and we get knocked down and it, upon, it is upon us to figure out how to continue in the same um, direction or pivot entirely um, in our life. And so that's why this book was kind of labeled the hard pivot because I had been pivoting my whole life, um, but I was inside of an ice rink. And then when I decided to retire um, from the sport by choice, there was an entire possibility uh, in a world that I didn't know that existed per se. And that may sound strange to some listeners, but you know, I was living in this bubble and environment of the Olympics. I didn't know what else out there <clears throat> was important. I didn't care, quite frankly. And I had felt deeply that this was my purpose. And so at those snap of a finger, I had to identify with who am I? Where am I going? What am I passionate about? What do I care about? All these things. Right. And that was tough. It was really yeah. hard um, psychologically. Yeah. You know, what you're saying really, really resonates with me. So, uh, you know, it's interesting because my whole life, I have not ever been an elite athlete, but I did work toward, you know, becoming a primary care doctor from college and medical school. And I think being a primary care doc is probably the only title besides being a mom that doesn't give me imposter syndrome. But I found myself sort of making a hard pivot in my own life a few years ago. Um, and, and when COVID hit, my husband, who is still a practicing doctor, uh, he was suiting up every day and going off, you know, to the hospital and taking care of patients. And I thought, my God, you know, I need to be doing the same thing, you know, how do I get back into this? And at that time I was eight months pregnant, maybe going on to 84 months pregnant, I don't know, with my third kid. And so it really just wasn't feasible. So I think that's what a lot of us find challenging when we make these changes. And you call it the great divorce in your book, leaving a piece of your own life behind and sort of starting fresh. Can you talk about that, the great divorce and, and the mindset you need to kind of go through that? Yeah, the great divorce is, is and a part of this is exactly what you, you talked about, right? Like <clears throat> when we have these things that that occur in our life and either by choice or by force, um, we, we are kind of forced to, to adapt and, and, and change, um, both ourselves 
in a way that requires us to go outside of the comfort zone. And so we've been conditioned. Most of us have been conditioned to do one thing uh, well for most of our life, whether it's your job, your career, your personality. These things are kind of they, – they start to feel hardwired because of the routines that have been set in. And, you know, upon these big abrupt changes, we now are faced with these very unfamiliar, both in terms of environments, in terms of the conversations that we have with ourselves, the self-talk and sometimes self-sabotage that occurs. Uh, and that's what makes it the most difficult is <clears throat> this divorce where that identity that has given you the happiness and fulfillment and joy and affirmation that this is why you're here. This is what you're good at. Here's where we can give you the head nod of approval every step of the way to no longer having those. I call those the guardrails, right? The guardrails of life that help you bounce along this like pinball machine to get to your goals. And they provide that atmosphere and environment that keeps you somewhat safe because you've figured out what you're good at. And when you no longer have those and they're flat, you're kind of flailing, trying to get the same type of stimuli from others, from your friends, your family, from your coworkers, from your new job, your new career, from yourself, and you're not getting anything. It's silent. It's dark. It's, it's, it's quiet. And that's hard, right? And, and, and we tend to typically go back to what we were doing previously because of one reason, and that is because we seek the normalcy and the routine, which gives us a sense of safety and also confirmation that we're doing things right. And so we th we say to ourselves, well, I always did it this way. I should continue to do it this way because <clears throat> that's how it's always worked. And there's some truth in that. Um, but that divorce was, was really hard for me as an athlete, as it is with every Olympic athlete. Uh, the only thing that we know that is constant in our lives is, is change. And the more that we can embrace that change, the more critical uh, thinking that we can provide to ourselves around how can we align with our true north and find our purpose. It's really hard to do. Many of us go through life well into our 40s and 50s, and maybe we don't really actually have a grasp on what our purpose is. And that's okay. I think that's natural. But I do hope that at least the silver lining for the past 24 months during COVID gave us some semblance of this idea of saying, like, what's really important to me, my family, my community? Am I doing and living a life that can be well-lived? I, mm -hmm. I had a podcast a few days ago with a former president of our country, and we were talking about this exact topic. And he was explaining to me that out of all of the people that he had spent time with, one individual had kind of told him consistently and over and over that when they reached an age in their life, they want to be able to look back and they were actually saying they can, they've lived an incredible life, right? And I think that's the goal, that that is the goal. And so we put other things that somewhat complicate and maybe challenge, whether it's finances, whether it's external signaling, whether it's you know fear of other people's opinions. I talk about this in the book extensively, FOPO. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All these things are, to me, they're, they're somewhat important because I believe that competition can be derived from those. And competition, I think, is very good. Mm -hmm. But I do think that we have somewhat and sometimes become handcuffed to an external goal and signal that perhaps is not completely in alignment with what we actually and truly want. And that is an issue because mm -hmm. if you find out when you're 60 or 70, you look back on your life and you say, I've been living for a bunch of strangers. Mm -hmm. I've been presenting and living my life in a way that maybe satisfies my gra my grandparents or my parents, but it doesn't make me happy. Mm -hmm. And you know, culturally, 
I understand that being half Japanese, right? And kind of subduing those natural passions and wants to satisfy the passions and wants from my parents, from my father. Um, mm. But I do think we have the ability now to have more open and transparent conversations, not just with them, but more right. importantly with ourselves. So that what so what was the moment for you? What was it in yourself that said, you know, I need to leave speed skating behind? Because as you say, and you say it in your book too, that you felt physically you were probably still in that elite arena. So what was it that made you say, okay, this is the moment that is making me walk away from from this what I've known my whole life? So, you know, as I watch these Winter Olympics and I see athletes like Sean White competing in his four, his fifth Olympic Games. Um, I physically could have very easily went on to compete in 2014 and then again in 2018 and probably in these games. These would have been my sixth Olympic Games mm. had I competed in Beijing. Physically, my body is able, had I not taken a break, to contain and to mitigate risk in terms of injury and, and make those teams, most likely. That's at least what I like to believe. Um, and so I think that was the easy path, actually. The easy path was for me to stay upon this routine that I understood. I had the blueprint. I had the playbook. Um, we were learning so much more about nutrition, about psychology, around training, overtraining, recovery. And so I was able to do so much more with so much less. Hmm. And that it felt like it was the natural response and indication of like wanting to to continue on that path but i had some deeper conversation like this inner voice that said this can't be forever mm -hmm. and at some point you need to go against the grain even when you don't feel ready and by the way i wasn't ready to retire like i was in absolute peak physical and mental condition it was, mm. it was actually just starting for me in terms of how I understood the sport in its entirety. Yeah. And so to walk yeah. away from that was really challenging. And the aha moment, the one that you're referring to, was this idea that I wanted to have success outside of the sport arena. It was really important mm. for me to find that, whether it was in business, whether, you know, whatever that might be, I, I deeply sought that out. I wanted to have a multifaceted character and approach to life. And I was deeply afraid of falling to be another statistic in the post-Olympic athlete world. Mm -hmm. And it was very real. You know, I wasn't retiring with tens of millions of dollars and hundreds of millions of dollars like some athletes are um, that have an incredible brand. You know, they've got great advisors. I mean, Olympic athletes typically are in debt $35,000 a year. I mean, that people don't know that, right? Wow. Like most athletes. And so you've, you've basically sacrificed your entire university and collegiate experience. Now, this is this is back then. It's changed today. Athletes, as you saw, like Nathan Chen and others, are are, are enrolling in in university at the same time. But in speed skating, it requires so much training. There just simply isn't enough time to do them both really well. And so you do sacrifice one. And I did. And so you know, when I think about this, the aha moment was, uh, I'm going to do something completely different. And by the way, during the past twelve years of my retirement, there has been many instances where I decided to reinvent and pivot. And even more recently, in terms of what my quasi-day job is, uh, I even considered coming back to the sport one more time and just making the team two years ago. I actually had that thought. 
And then I kind of looked at myself in the mirror. I looked at the calluses across my, my pinky and my pointing finger because that's where I had all these years of basically, as I, as I, as I run my finger across both of those areas on my, on my hand, they're very calloused because of tying my shoes and tying my skates all those years because we use these wax laces that are, that are kind of abrasive. Um, and I kind of look and I'm like, I don't have to do this anymore. Like, what are you seeking? Why are, are you doing this for yourself? Are you doing this for someone else? And then I kind of laughed and I had this other opportunity to join uh, an investment team that's based in San Francisco. And it was very, I was very um, uncertain around kind of the lifestyle and the work environment that was going to be there. Culturally, it was a great fit. But the reason why I tell you this is because that was uncomfortable. I didn't know a lot about that business, but I was given an opportunity to learn. And so along that process, I think these things come into play, which is really important for us to take advantage of. Wow. So, you know, one of the things that's my favorite part of any book is the dedication. And you Mm -hmm. dedicate your book to your father, your godmother, Maria, and Bianca. So beautiful and so powerful. Can you share with us how each of them helped support you through your hard pivot phases? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, Bianca, uh, she's, she's been my best friend um, for the past six and a half years. Um, she's given me so much insight um, knowledge and also pushed me to want to grow in areas of my life that had been stunted or perhaps compartmentalized for most of the last of my 12 years uh, in retirement. And um, she's, you know, she's always pushed me to kind of lead with empathy, lead with love, show the vulnerability. Uh, communication has never been a great uh, or a strong point in my relationships in the past. And she has absolutely demanded that I have to improve in many areas of that. And so she's been incredible. Uh, my godmother, Maria, has been the real kind of philosophical um, shaman, so to speak, in my life. And one that she's just given me so much knowledge around being more inquisitive around myself, seeking truth, trying to peel back the layers of of texture to understand what does Apollo want from the universe and what do I believe the universe wants from Apollo? Those types of deep inner questions. And then my father, you know, my father's been just in, in, in amazing in so many ways, you know, having to raise me as a single parent, not having, you know, um, a ton of financial resources and support uh, through his example of work ethic. You know, my father has just, he's taught me so much as he does to this day. I'm still in awe of the incredible wisdom that he has, both in terms of how operationally uh, this world is turning and moving, and also how I can mitigate some of those natural responses and reactions that I have to what's happening around me. He's done just a really, he's done an excellent job of, of, of showing me that. So I'm deeply grateful for those people. Yeah. It is so critical to have that support system. But as you said, the hard work really happens inside of yourself um, with regard to self-reflection and figuring out what you want to do in the future. So do you think it's harder right now for elite athletes that are in the limelight because of social media? Does FOPO, the fear of other people's opinion, does that, is that worse in our current landscape? Yeah, fo- I, I love the the FOPO um, explanation, and and I, I first was was um, 
introduced to this through my good friend, Michael Gervais, uh, who's a sports psychologist in Southern California. He's worked with a lot of the Olympic teams. And, and, you know, when when we were on his podcast, um, he kind of introduced this idea of FOPO to me. Um, and I think that we, we talk about these social media, uh, additional and external pressures associated. Now there's two sides to every story, right? One of them is that, you know, with the power of social, the ability to connect with fans, to be vulnerable, show empathy, and also purely from a commercial perspective, there's, it's so much more opportunity today than there's ever been for athletes who aren't even the best to make a great living using if they can figure out how to build communities and engage with those communities and fans. So I think on the social media side, I mean, the data is pretty clear uh, around, you know, if you use it as a tool, it's powerful. If it uses you as a tool, we know the detriment there associated. And so I think it's important for all athletes to move from being in the passenger seat in the social media world of pressure and instead move to the driver's seat and realize that it's delicate. It's, it's something that can be really, really important to a brand. Um, and from a career perspective, but also that it requires work. And the work is not only in terms of producing content, but also in terms of limiting the types of content that you're consuming. Because as we all know, uh, you know, our mental addictions to these devices and these dopamine responses is it's so easy to become engulfed in a world of scrolling on your phone. Uh, and, and that, you know, they make it really easy. Um, and, and they're excellent at it. I mean, they're incredible at it. So we have to do our best to, I think, maintain our own discipline over how, when, and what types of um, content that we are consuming. And then also allowing that to, you know, not, not, not to permeate into our psyche in a way that will be detrimental. All right. You know, it's so interesting because the last few years, we've really seen elite athletes take a stand for their mental health, uh, whether that means pulling out of competition or you know, stepping away from from media. What do you think about that? And how did you protect your own mental health when you were an elite athlete and had the pressures of an entire nation on your back? Well, the pressures are real and they are a part of the responsibility of being a big athlete. I don't think we can shy away from that. Uh, I, I do think that ultimately the decisions are up to our own and it's important for us to maintain um, that kind of quiet calmness and coolness that allows us to be our best. But it, you know, as we saw from the 2021 Tokyo summer winter or summer games, um, what we saw with athletes speaking out about mental health on the world stage in the pinnacle of the moment, this has this is unprecedented in any capacity. The conditioning that I had grown up with and many before me was that when you define strength and pressure, they mean that you wipe away all other emotions and noise that are happening between your own two years. And that's how we were brought up. There wasn't even, a, it was a non-starter conversation to say when someone says, are you okay for you to actually tell the truth? And I think many of us live in that environment. Are you okay? I'm okay. Uh, yeah, I'm fine. I'm okay. I mean, it's, you know, it's hard, but I'm getting through it, right? These kind of like little basically mini lies that we're saying to ourselves and to others. That's how we've been conditioned for so long because we've never celebrated someone in the past who has been so open and so vulnerable. But I think that deep down on the 
uh, uh, kind of contextual layer, we've always sought that. We've always wanted someone who was hyper authentic, that that friend or family member who just can't help themselves, right? Maybe they're really loud in a restaurant. Maybe their laugh is like so ridiculous, like, and, and they know it, but they just simply can't help it. There's something naturally authentic about that person that we want to have for ourselves. It's, it's like the saying, dance like no one is watching. And the person who can, person who can dance like no one is watching is, I mean, we, you know, we, we all want that. And so when you see this happening in the real world scenario of the pressures of the Olympic games and athletes saying, I'm not okay. And you know what? I'm not going to make a decision based upon your expert export of beliefs of what you believe I should do in these moments. Um, that takes a lot of courage. That's actually completely opposite of what people believe it. You know, if you don't agree with Simone Biles, um, uh, decision, for example, and you say, you know, oh, I think that she's being selfish, or I think that she's letting her teammates down, or I think that she's just cracking under pressure. Like whatever your idea is that you're trying to export to her, we have no idea what that woman is going through, the trauma that she has experienced, the thoughts that's happening, or the safety associated with flying and hurling through the air, doing those incredible feats of superhuman performance and gymnastics. Mm-hmm. So I, like many, and this is me being really open. My natural response, sorry, my natural reaction to when I heard that, it was like, hey, that doesn't seem right. She needs to toughen up. And then I was like, wait a second, Apollo, you're wrong. You are completely mm-hmm. wrong. You don't know anything about this person. And when I started to do more research and I started to read about this better and I started to listen to what she was saying, I was like, wow, I don't know if I would have be, be able to actually do what she did. And that was, re- it's just, I'm just, I'm so proud of, you know, people like Ali Raisman, people like Simone Biles and all of these athletes who have said, you know what, like, I want to show that I can be strong and extremely high performant. And I can right. also show that I'm human. Right. Yeah, that that is so true. And, you know, obviously, when there are hard pivots, or you're changing sort of your mindset and, and sharing your authentic self, there are places where you may fall down and, and have some failure. So what is your own personal self talk look like when you fall down? How do you get yourself to get back up and, and regroup? Well, my, my initial reactions are probably very much like everyone else. Disappointed, angry, sad, upset, feeling like something was taken away from me. Uh, But now I feel like I've been able to condition myself to be able to stay in that mindset very, very short amount of time. Mm -hmm. And I immediately pivot and I say, okay, I understand I'm disappointed because the result was not what I wanted, but how can I accept and surrender to this result and outcome, which is required, that's the first step, and then start to analyze and critique the best way moving forward. How can I pick myself back up, recalibrate, re, you know, adjust, survey the landscape, so to speak, you know, climb up onto the metaphorical, um, you know, uh, balcony and then reassess the direction of life and what I'm trying to do. And so doing that very quickly is the tricky part. And the more that you can embrace this by routines and daily practices, the easier and faster that it is to be dynamic and on your feet. And so the people in the world who maybe this comes a little more naturally to them, they are able to fail fast and then start again also fast. And that's the purpose here, right? Is is we understand that pain and and suffering, um, these are natural occurrences in our life. 
but we don't have to dwell and stay in those moments of pain and suffering for long durations. These are the things like from a physical perspective, right? When you're lifting weights and you've got the calluses on your hands, right? When you are growing and getting stronger, your body is building up these incredible, um, it's fortifying itself. And just like one of my favorite you know, uh, 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 poems and, and, and quotes from Douglas, you know, uh, this author, Douglas Malik, you know, good timber does not grow with ease, the stronger mm. wind, the stronger trees. So embracing that and understanding, I think first and foremost, that this is a part of the process. And if you got every single thing that you wanted in life without any failure, I think that would actually be a very strange way to live. I wouldn't even know how to explain that. Mm -hmm. uh, I think life is filled with ups and downs, twists and turns, and a well-lived life is not without hardship. It's actually a critical piece of it. Yeah, I, I think that's so great and such an important point that it's really the emotions may all be the same. The negative self-talk may be the same in the beginning, but it's the speed with which you shift and, and recalibrate. I think that's such a crucial, crucial way to think about it. You talk about five golden principles as well, maybe as a method to kind of shorten that time of the negative self talk and get into the sort of the change of mindset. Can you talk about those five golden principles? Yeah, the five golden principles are what I have found to be pretty relevant and consistent, not only in my own life, but in other people's lives as well. And I can just, I'd like to share them with you now. Um, the first is gratitude some sort of daily practice that lets us maintain perspective, cultivate empathy, and alleviate stress in real time. The second is giving, selflessly giving our time, attention, and resources to others, but also giving ourselves the best possible chance of success, which means no more self-sabotage. And that also means the way that you talk to yourself. Three is grit. How can we develop mental stamina, resilience, and toughness to persevere through the harshest of times? Four is gearing up, and that means gearing up your expectations, setting your expectations, the ways in which we can prepare ourselves to meet the challenges that we have with flexibility and grace. And the last is go, going and getting into action, developing the courage to go and take that risk, take that chance uh, to learn from both success and failure and come back stronger, to not allow the paralysis by perfectionism uh, mindset mm. to stall or make you hesitate or never launch or never do that thing that you are deserving to do. And these have resonated, I think, in many ways in my life when I was an athlete. They've resonated in many ways post-career, and they also just seem to keep me so centered. And I really hope that people can embrace these five golden principles as kind of foundational frameworks and tools that can help anchor themselves when, when it feels like uh, the sea is getting too rocky, so to speak. Right. And and so many of us are feeling that right now with COVID and COVID, the various waves of coming and crashing into us and maybe changing our direction. Or we think we're re-entering and then we don't and we can't. And and now hopefully we're we're entering that phase where we can go with what we feel is right in our heart. So what's next for you? Are you in a glide phase of your life right now or are you trying to pivot <laughs> to something new? Well, what's next for me is I, I joined as a, a general partner 
uh, of a, of a, a venture investment team based in San Francisco called Tribe Capital. And so we, we talk to early stage technology companies and founders, uh, and, and hopefully who are trying to change the world. And we support them along that journey. That has been very different than anything else. And the culture that Tribe Capital has built has been pretty spectacular, both in terms of work ec- work ethic and cadence, but also team environment. Uh, that has been my newest pivot. But at the core, what I really love is everything that's in the book Hard Pivot. And I take those principles with me when I talk to the next generation of young founders and hopefully can instill and give them insights around what is to come and how they can embrace these challenges and pressures associated with being an entrepreneur and be their best self to figure out that you know life is short and these 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 moments that we're given are truly a gift and so maximize them as much as possible so it's like this this pivot that I'm doing what I really love throughout the work of hard pivot um, I have another idea for another book already actually that I've been <laughs> sketching out early this morning um, even though this book is you know comes out February 22nd with the audiobook and and the hard copy and and the um, the paperback but it's I've been I've been living a blessed life, not feel, you know not without its challenges and hardships. But uh, I think the older that I get, the more and more that I try to embrace these opportunities that come my way. And so I feel very lucky to share that with the world. Wow! Well, thank you so much for sharing those words of wisdom and for spending some time with us today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Health Discovered from WebMD. I'm Dr. Neha Patak. Before you go, please take a moment to subscribe to Health Discovered wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay well, and I'll talk to you next time.